From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Mary Joyce has worked for two major metropolitan newspapers, the Orlando Sentinel in Florida as an artist and columnist, and the Oakland Press in Michigan as a Sunday magazine editor and then the feature editor. Mary's gone from investigating mob stories in Detroit, including Jimmy Hoffa's death, to interviewing people with the highest top secret clearances about clandestine government activities. She even had a face-to-face interview with a whistleblower with cosmic top secret clearance who once worked within the top tier of the infamous international cabal. She's the author of Underground Military Bases Hidden in North Carolina Mountains. Cherokee Little People Were Real, Tangible Evidence of Jesus Left Behind for Us, and Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints. And she is the founder of an absolutely fabulous website called skyshipsovercashiers.com. Hey, Mary, welcome. How are you? I'm doing real well. And as usual, I like to share with you the most recent uh, information that I've discovered and one that I'm currently kind of excited about. And since September, we have discovered three ancient cities emerging from the ice in Antarctica. And to give your listeners an idea of what these images look like, they're all perpendicular lines. They are box squares that look like the walls for uh, multiple buildings like you might see in New York. Not as clear, but clearly they are man-made, not something that nature did. And you discovered these using Google Earth. Yes, and I would encourage people to uh, use that a lot. We found things that we weren't supposed to see under the ocean and on Mars and now in Antarctica, and uh, it's quite a useful tool. Talk to me about this young disabled woman. I believe she suffered a series of strokes and is was left bedridden, so she has a lot of time now and has taken up this task of using Google Earth to find unusual, perhaps ancient formations under the ocean and now in the Antarctic. I'm so glad you mentioned her. Her name is Mary Hall. She lives in Michigan. She got a stroke as a very young person. She was under 50 for a stroke that's young. And uh, she's now homebound, but she's not bedridden. And she doesn't waste her time. She monitors the uh, International Space Center. She monitors Google. She searches for these things. And back in May, she decided she was going to see if she could find any remnants of an ancient civilization on Antarctica. So she started in May, and she found one in September, September 18th. And it's really quite an interesting place, because not only does it have these uh, geometric shapes, but the whole uh, metropolitan area is like organic. It's like it's developed along a river, perhaps, And uh, that's what really got us started. And when she found that, it inspired me to start really taking more time to look for things myself. And I found one that I call a walled city. There's this wall that's 574 feet long, and right next to it, abutting to it and below it, are all these box shapes that indicate, I'll say, man-made structures. When you back off from that and get a, a bigger view of it, 
that wall, which may be a bridge, which may be a road, I, I, I cannot tell for sure, it's broken and it picks up again. And when it picks up again, it's over 1,600 feet in length. And for those who aren't familiar with Google Earth, there is a tool where you can actually measure things. And you can measure them in feet or inches or miles or kilometers. So it's been very helpful in discovering these things. And what is most remarkable, perhaps, of all, as you point out in the article at skyshipsovercashiers.com, is if these ancient cities, ancient civilizations are emerging from the ice, how old would they have to be? They have to be the oldest things that we've ever discovered. Uh, most scientists agree that the ice has been in Antarctica for about 34 million years. That's an awful long time. And so the ice is melting fast now, and uh, these things are emerging, and they have to be at least that old. And they've been in a deep freeze for millions of years. We don't have anything close to that age on any other continent in the world. Uh, the oldest one I'm familiar with is in Africa, and it's kind of a primitive structure. It goes back 100,000 years, which is just a blink of the eye compared to what we're finding in Antarctica. Actually, the things in Antarctica are 340 times older than the oldest things we know about in South Africa. What about these legendary bases that the Nazis built down there in the Antarctic? Is it possible that we're looking at those? No, uh, everything that I have learned about that is those structures are very deep within Antarctica, and these are just below the ice. So I don't think we're seeing the same thing. And from what I understand, the Nazi structures really started out by expanding on like volcanic tubes and volcanic caves uh, way beneath the ground. So no, I don't think they're the same thing. This young woman that first discovered these images on Google Earth back in May, she was looking in a very unusual place, a place that most people wouldn't think about. Tell me about that. I would have skipped right over that. In fact, I have a picture with a story on the website, and it's just a picture of the ice. And you can see these real fine, like black sliver-like cracks in the ice. Well, she actually took the time to zero in and go into those cracks, and that's where she found the first ruins. I confess I never would have been that diligent to have found the original ones because it would take so much dedication and patience and time. You're always careful to mark down the exact coordinates when you're looking for something on Google Earth. And in this case, I believe you marked it 79 degrees, 13 minutes, 50 seconds south, 155 degrees, 51 minutes, 30 seconds east. And you do that because you want to go back and check it at some point. What happened when you went back to that exact same coordinate the next time? Well, there's two reasons I do it. One is for my own reference so I can go back and find the things again. But I also want people out there in the world to be able to check these things out for themselves because there's so much happening on the Internet where people do Photoshop and they seem to get a kick out of, you know, creating things that aren't real. So when you can check them out yourself, then it becomes more believable. Now, the thing that really, I guess, upset me happened just a couple of days ago. And I went back after writing an article about this find, and my goodness, it had been totally distorted. Initially, I could see the parallel lines and the perpendicular lines and the box shapes. And just an hour later, when I went back, it doesn't look like that at all. 
so somebody doesn't want us to know what's going on down there and why they want to hide ancient history is a bit of a puzzlement to me. And of course, we can't be certain about who the they is, but they have been very active. Right. You posted the after picture when you went back to look at it again. And as you say, it's very pixelated, very blurry. You really can't tell that you're looking at some sort of an ancient metropolis. Who do you think built these things? Are we talking about an ancient alien civilization or perhaps along the lines of, you know, Michael Cremo, who's written about ancient advanced technological civilizations that have existed on Earth for millions and millions of years? I lean toward the idea that they're uh, more like us than like aliens. That's just my own feel about this story. The reptilian stories all seem to be coming from deep within the ground. These were clearly surface structures at one time that were covered up. The Nazi things, the reptilian things were deep beneath that from the beginning. So they weren't surface structures. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll uh, continue to search uh, Google Earth for more evidence of ancient civilizations down in the Antarctic. Now, let's shift gears. Here's another mind-blowing story available at skyshipsovercashiers.com. And that is Albert Einstein's assistant, Dr. Shirley Wright. This was an interview that was released, I guess, earlier this month, a taped interview with Dr. Shirley Wright who accompanied Dr. Albert Einstein, her boss, at a Roswell investigation in 1947. Tell me about it. Well, to be very honest with you, um, I'm not that much interested in posting Roswell stories because it seems like we have heard it from so many people so many ways. But this is different. Dr. Shirley Wright was a very bright woman, and she didn't release her story until 74 years after she was there, and she not only saw the ship, she saw the ETs. She told us some of the things we've heard from other people. There were nine bodies, but what sticks out in my mind is that she was able to see an interchange between the scientists and the government people and whoever else was there, an interchange between them and the ETs. So there was a actually a like a Q&A back and forth between the two. I had never heard that before. And anybody who's interested in this subject would probably find it very interesting to listen to the tape. It looks like it was recorded on those old cassette tapes because one's about eight minutes long, one's about 10 minutes long or something close to that. It's worth listening to. She had top security clearance to even be there. A couple things that stand out in my mind is that um, those ETs, were having trouble with their home base or home planet and were out exploring the universe, trying to find a place where they might relocate. So that was the purpose of their trip. They were very advanced, apparently a little bit condescending about how ignorant humans were. Uh, they did ask how far we'd gone out into space. They asked how deep we'd gone into the ocean. They asked what kind of diseases caused our demise. So they were curious about us, and of course, our scientists were curious about them. The ETs may have learned more than our scientists did, because the ETs felt that we were just, you know, kind of dumb. Right. Why was Einstein asked to go to Roswell? He was one of the most notable, and still is one of the most notable scientists at that time. 
And they brought him in because they wanted to learn as much as possible. And he would have the background to understand so much more than the military people or the other scientists that might be there. That's the reason he was called in. According to Dr. Shirley Wright, Einstein seemed, I don't know, what's the word, nonplussed about this. He wasn't like shocked or amazed. He seemed to take it in stride. I think people who have creative minds and are very intelligent have probably already in their own thoughts contemplated these possibilities. So I don't think it was hitting him like something he had never thought about before. Now, that's my opinion. That's not based on anything that she said. Right. And incidentally, people can hear that interview with Dr. Shirley Wright, which was recorded by researcher Sheila Franklin. And that's at ufoexplorations.com, ufoexplorations.com. I'm glad you said that because I think it's important to listen to the tape. And uh, I have a link with the story that we have posted. It's called Einstein's Assistant Saw and Heard Roswell's ETs. The person who found it and made it public was a UFO researcher named Anthony Bergalia. And that tape is actually on his site. And anytime somebody does some really great research that I think other people ought to know, I am the first one who will put it on our website. I'm not trying to be the know-it-all about everything. And he found quite a little treasure when he got those tapes. The recordings were actually made back in 1993 but they only became available this year in October. Your knowledge, did Einstein ever talk about this publicly or even privately? Oh, I know that a number of years ago we did a story, and I'm not going to be able to bring back too much of the top of my head, but he had addressed these uh, topics along with uh, one of the uh, Nazi scientists. So, yes, he had contemplated these things and explored some of these things before. But did he actually mention participating in this investigation at Roswell? No, this is the first time that I have been aware of this in any way whatsoever. All right. Here's another shocking story. Mary, tell us about the United States and their plan to detonate a nuclear device on the moon. Well, let me tell you what really sparked it all. Back in 1957, the Russians launched the very first satellite called Sputnik, you know, and it was successful. The United States became absolutely upset because we were suddenly in second position. And I'm old enough to remember the impact on the world at that time or on our country at that time. Suddenly we had new uh, programs in education for advanced math. I mean, just everybody was getting crazy that we weren't the top dog anymore. So... According to a man named Alex Wellerstein, and he's a respected historian about nuclear science and technology, the military came up with a plan to drop a bomb on the moon. The intent was to show Russia that we still were very powerful and, you know, not really second place. I think it's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And this is another piece of information that just came out this year, this man's book, Again, it's Alex Wellerstein, came out this year. And so before that, I don't think anybody was really aware that this had even been a plan. As I did more research into this, I found out that the man who was in charge of maintaining all the nuclear weaponry or the inventory for all the nuclear weapons in the U.S. said before he died that there had been a plan 
for scientific purposes to um, use an atomic weapon on the moon. And the plan, he said, was stopped by extraterrestrials. And this man was an Air Force colonel, and he worked directly with the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. So those are two credible sources that indicate that our military once entertained what I think is a terrible idea. U.S. Air Force Colonel Ross Dedrickson. And um, you mentioned the book by Alex Wellerstein, that's Restricted Data, the History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. So did he provide any other details about this plan to detonate a nuclear device on the moon that was stopped by extraterrestrials? Any further details on how it was stopped? Was it a UFO that turned the nuclear device off or was there a a face-to-face meeting? Do we know anything more? The only thing else I know is that the plan to do an experiment with an atomic weapon actually had a name. It was Project A-119. And the only thing I know is that before he died, he said that plan was halted by extraterrestrials. If he elaborated on it, I have not been able to find that. All right. I'm wondering if they had been successful and detonated this nuclear device on the moon, whether that might have altered the distance between the Earth and the moon, whether it could have caused some catastrophic situation back here on Earth. Has anyone commented on that? Not in relationship to this story, but I do know that the moon seems to be perfectly positioned to keep a balance on Earth. And if it was in a different position, we would be in trouble. Our weather systems, everything depend on the moon. I'm one of those who feels pretty strongly that the moon is um, a hollow spaceship or ETs from somewhere. And there's been two times that um, the astronauts have dropped pieces of equipment on the moon and have caused it to ring. Um which would indicate it's hollow. And some of this vibration lasted for hours on on at least one of those two. And when you have an earthquake on Earth, it doesn't last but just a minute or so because the Earth is dense. But with the moon being hollow, that vibration would continue on for hours. Um, So if the ETs indeed are using that as a uh, command base, Well, you better believe they didn't want anybody dropping a nuclear bomb on their uh, spaceship, which we call the moon. Writer, researcher, and the founder of Skyships over Cashiers.com, Mary Joyce, back with more in a moment. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. Well, the hits just keep on coming, Mary. Story after story here, mind-blowing story after story at skyshipsovercashiers.com. Tell me about Sergeant Major Robert O'Dean, who broke his cosmic top-secret clearance oath. Um, Back in 2010, I spoke at the International UFO Congress in in Nevada, and he was there. And I want you to know that he was so highly respected that during that entire week, I never saw him without an retinue of people following him around and hanging on every word he said. Um, he um, had cosmic top secret clearance with NATO. That's the highest clearance that the, um, that's available. And he worked for 
uh, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, which they call SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E, um, for, from 63 to 67. And he was assigned to the war room. Uh, he was an intelligence uh, analyst. And he said that his life was changed because they showed him a report that was done in 1961 um, about ETs and about ETs being uh, here on Earth and, and involved um, with our planet. And he said his life was never the same after that. In the article that I have, uh, which is called Man with Cosmic Top Secret Clearance Says ETs on Earth, um, um, which, by the way, is at the, it's the very last thing on the homepage on the right-hand side. Uh, when we post things, we have the most recent 20 stories on the right-hand side, and everything we've talked about so far is in that column, so it's easy to find. Um, he broke his cosmic secret um, clearance a number of times because he felt very, very strongly that uh, the public had a right to know that uh, there were ETs and the ETs were involved in our world. Um, he said that we are going to, you know, be exposed to them directly and that our population wasn't prepared for that. And he felt it was his responsibility to let people know. I have a link with that story to a, a seven minute video in which you hear him speak for himself. And um, I think it's worth listening to. It's also, there's kind of a positive uh, message there. He's very positive about mankind's future. Which is nice to hear these days, because sometimes it seems like everything's bad. Um, uh, he said that if they were going to get rid of us or do us harm, it would have happened a long time ago. Uh, he feels like they have been involved with our evolution as human beings. Uh, he also said we can't categorize them. He said there are those that look human that looked just like us, and if they sat down next to us, uh, we would not notice the difference. Uh, he said that these ETs uh, have various degrees of um, capabilities. He said some are interplanetary, some are interstellar, some are intergalactic, and some are multidimensional. So, um, uh, it, it, you know, I think it's time that everybody listen to this seven-minute video because I think we all need a boost. We keep hearing all the creepy um, creepy things and all the things that uh, make the world seem scary. Uh, Mary, you wrote Cherokee little people were real. Uh, we've talked about that in the past, but you have an update at Sky Ships over cashiers about uh, Cherokee little people still living today. What's going on? Yeah, when I wrote that book, which is a number of years ago now, I was uh, thinking in the past, I had met all these uh, uh, elderly men who had worked on construction at Western Carolina University, and they found all this evidence of uh, the little people. They found little tunnels, little skeletons. And so I wrote the whole book in the past tense. Well, when people found out, especially the Native Americans, found out that I wasn't laughing at this idea uh, that there might be Cherokee little people, I began to be contacted by people who are today still having contact with the little people, not in large numbers, but still they're seeing them. Um, one of the stories that um, I found incredibly interesting, uh, I learned from a, a very, very shy Cherokee girl here in North Carolina. She would never have talked to me except a friend of mine was a friend of hers 
And because of that connection, she was willing to trust me. So you get these magical uh, connections that happen, and sometimes the best stories happen that way. Anyhow, uh, one of her stories was really cute. And what she said when she was a child, uh, her family had a place up in the remote section of the Cherokee Reservation here in North Carolina, and they would go there for family meetings or family picnics or outings. And they kept a small trailer up there for the bathroom and also to do some cooking. Well, she was one of the kids running around playing hide and seek, and she decided she'd go hide in the shower of the little trailer. And when she pulled back the shower curtain, there was this little man, which she described as looking like um, Moji from the uh, um, the movie, uh, the little character um, with the straight cut dark hair. Right. And she said he smiled real big at her, and it scared her to death, and she went running to her daddy. But she said she'd never forgotten that. And she wasn't the only one in her family who had had experiences. Um, her mother grew up in a, uh, the area called Big Crow Cove. And uh, uh, she said that she and her cousins would play around in that area in the mountains. And once they saw six little people in a circle. And she said in all her life, she only saw one girl. Uh, the rest had just been boys when they would be out uh, playing in the woods and seeing these little creatures. Um, her grandmother apparently had seen it, and then she went to um, Snowbird, North Carolina, which is even a more remote part of um, of Western North Carolina. And her uncle wanted to prove to her about the little people, and so he uh, spread out flour on the floor. And the next morning when they got up, there were these little footprints uh, that could be seen in the flour. So those were some stories that just came out from one person. Uh, I think your most and recent. More. Oh, uh, yeah, please br- okay. keep bringing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then I was contacted again. When they find out, when the Indians find out that you're not going to laugh at them, they will open up with you. And another man, uh, again, Cherokee, contacted me. And he had uh, at one time been hunting, bear hunting with another friend uh, near a place called Chimney Rock. And Chimney Rock is a state park here in western North Carolina. And suddenly there was this really, really bad storm, and they found a small cave and um, crawled into it to spend the night so they wouldn't be uh, drenched. And he said, and I, let's see, I can probably quote him on this. During the night, my friend Kenny woke me and told me not to say a word because there were little people outside the cave. We lay there quietly in the dark listening. They spoke in old Cherokee. Today's Cherokee speaks slang. So Kenny and I uh, could not understand what they said, only a word or two. Uh, The little people were there all night. The next morning, outside the cave, there were little footprints about the size of a five- or six-year-old child. Remarkable, remarkable. Um, Is is this? I can give you another one if you're interested. Yeah, please keep them coming. These are amazing. Okay. Um, I I live here in the mountains, and about um, one or two ridges away from where I live, uh, there's a couple that I'm friends with, and they have a webcam outside their uh, entranceway to where they live. They live at the top of the ridge. Uh, It's a one-way road to get up there. Um, And if it hadn't been for, I think, a blackbird or something going in front of this um, cam. you know, camera, um, they never would have caught it. 
but they caught this little figure in the woods. And they debated a while before they decided to bring the subject up with me because one of them thought it was just a spirit. Another one thought it might actually be a real little person. And what they finally did was to let me see what they had found. And I took that on the computer and I increased the intensity of the, um, the color. Anything that is alive goes to a magenta color. Anything that is not alive, which would be a spirit or a ghost, stays white. So what I did in one of the postings was I had those images, and then I found uh, pictures of ghosts um, that are supposedly authentic, and I did the same thing. I turned up the intensity of the color. The ghost in the pictures stayed white. In one of the pictures, the ghost is crawling on the floor playing with a small child who was alive. The child turned magenta. The, little, the ghost stayed white. So this little uh, creature in the woods, little person in the woods, um, turned magenta. So it clearly was not a spirit. Um, this was captured by the camera in August when it was really pretty warm. Um, the little person is either nude or very close to it. You see the back side of it. It has the long um, black straight cut hair like the uh, emoji from the movies. And um, the couple were really curious. So the man went out to where they had seen the little person, and he measured the height of it. And then he kept crouching down by the markings on the tree, and he figured that the little person was about three, three and a half feet tall. That is the height that I consistently have heard in all of my research. So they, after a bunch of years, we finally may have a very blurry but perhaps believable photo of a little person. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back, writer-researcher and the founder of Skyships over Cashiers.com, Mary Joyce, is here. Bigfoot, your latest book, Beyond the uh, Footprints. And I know you've been doing some media. You were on with my good friend uh, Jim Harold recently talking about uh, Bigfoot and uh, some other programs. Any updates on your Bigfoot research? It isn't my research, but I will be posting something uh, next week um, by the end of the week. And it's one of the few videos that looks like it might be authentic of uh, a Bigfoot in the woods. It was taken by a couple on Vancouver Island. So maybe by the end of this coming Friday, uh, it'll be posted. It will be at the top of the uh, page on the homepage, so um, anybody will be able to find it. That's the most recent thing. Um, other than that, um, it, you know, I have a lot of stories in um, the book that I've done, and uh, it shows the human side of the Bigfoot. I got tired of hearing just about Bigfoot footprints and you know, the, sto- the scary stories about them always being violent. What I have found from my research is that they don't become violent, except with those who are aiming guns at them or shooting at them. Um, the two stories I include in the book that are of that nature, you know, involve that kind of situation. So um, these these Bigfoot, they have family, they... Um, um, I don't know. It's it, they, they have more human qualities than people might think. And genetically, I call them our cousin, uh, our cousins, 
because they've analyzed the DNA, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Dr. Melba Ketchum. Uh, Ketchum. She started all this, and she was made fun of when she first came up with her research that the Bigfoot have some human DNA. Since then, other researchers have confirmed what she found, and the mother's side of the gene uh, pool is human. The paternal side is some unknown primate. They don't even have a record of what it might be. Um, Another thing that I found out that was kind of interesting is that um, the Bigfoot don't all look the same. They can be different sizes. Uh, The smallest ones seem to be like in Florida where they're called swamp apes. Uh, We seem to have the medium-sized ones. And out out west in the Rockies is where you seem to get the, the largest Bigfoot. But they can vary in color. Uh, one gal who has uh, had so much contact with um, Bigfoot all of her life that she was invited to go to uh, Russia um, by the head of the Hominology uh, Institute uh, because of her knowledge. And she said that uh, the skin color can be everything from black, tan, to white, to gray, uh, that the eye color isn't always the same. Um, the personalities uh, can vary just like they do with us. So there's a lot of um, variation that I don't think most people are aware of. Bigfoot, Beyond the Footprints. Uh, Mary, you're so busy maintaining this amazing website, doing research. What are you working on right now? Um, believe it or not, I'm going to continue do, doing this research on the um, Antarctica finds because I think that's mind-boggling history. Uh, if we're finding things from 34 million years ago. And um, hopefully this will be the good uh, result of, um, I don't know, climate change. Everything else about climate change seems to be negative, but this is good because glaciers and ice are melting everywhere in the world at a very fast rate. And to such an extent that we even have a new category of archaeology. It's called glacial archaeology. And that was started um, after uh, a mommy was found in the Swiss Alps. And he's known as Atsi, the Iceman. And what a find. They found 400 artifacts around this man for his his body um, as he emerged from the ice. And they found out everything about him. They they found out he was murdered. Uh, there was an arrow that had gone through his shoulder and it hit an artery. Um, then he was hit on the head and he had a hematoma. So somebody clearly killed him. And shortly before his death, he had had a meal. They were able to analyze that. Um, he had eaten uh, wheat and ibis and I think red deer. Um, they were able to get his DNA and they couldn't find any uh, genetic link uh, maternally to any race that exists today on Earth. But they were able to find on the father's side that um, the father's line came from the islands off of Italy. Remarkable, remarkable. Uh, call it the world's oldest cold case, an unsolved murder. Um, yes. Always fascinating yes. speaking with you, Mary. Again, the website which is just uh, mind-blowing stuff each and every week, skyshipsovercashiers.com, skyshipsovercashiers, and cashier is spelled C-A-S-H-I-E-R-S, cashiers.com. 
And um, where do we get all of your uh, books? They're all available on Amazon. If you go to the website and open up Editor's Corner, you can click on uh, my books, and there's a brief summary of each one of them, plus a cover photo of each one of them. So uh, you can get a taste of what they're about before you go and invest with Amazon. Okay, hold on, Mary. Another quick timeout. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back, writer, researcher, and the founder of SkyshipsOverCashiers.com, Mary Joyce, is here. What about in North Carolina? Are there a lot of Bigfoot sightings? Uh, Not a lot compared to uh, the Rocky Mountains in the West, but yes, we do have them, and I live here in the mountains of western North Carolina, uh, so I've been able to investigate some cases and uh, been to a Bigfoot cave and seen the prints and heard them make their calls, and uh, um, so I've seen a lot of things firsthand that I wouldn't be able to do if I lived in Flatland. How are they organized? Are there multiple families that live together, or are they more solitary? Everything that I have personally come across with is that they have family units, and that's what you usually see. It's typically uh, a male, a female, and I've never heard of more than two kids at a time. Um, Then there's evidence that they have um, like a clan type thing, but they don't come together in large groups in any noticeable way. Uh, Four is the most that uh, any of us have been aware of at one time. So there's indications there's more within a a certain area. And how long do the young typically stay with their parents? I honestly do not know that answer. Uh, The Bigfoot apparently lived to be, you know, much older than we humans. And uh, the the kids are with them from a very small size. And you also see families where they look like they're adolescents or teenagers. Uh, So they they have an extended family life. Uh, over many years. And are they territorial? Well, not in the sense that dogs go and pee on trees and mark their territory, but they live in regions. And um, I don't know if that is an answer to your question. Well, for example, will they defend their territory from other Bigfoot intruders? I don't know. I'm not aware of like clans of Bigfoot competing with each other. We've never seen any evidence of that. Um, if if we humans get too close, they will, in most cases, try to scare us away. And they will do that by making their sounds or by throwing stones, not at you directly, but around you. Um, and they'll make their howls and they'll give off an odor, uh, all just trying to keep you away from where they spend most of their time. Um, but we have had men, we have not had reports of people being attacked by it. Uh, however, at the very end of my book, I do include two stories where they have gotten violent. And in both cases, uh, it involves hunters with guns who are trying to shoot them. And if somebody was trying to shoot me, I probably would not react well either. What else have you learned about family life with Bigfoot? Um, let me tell you what I think is a really cute story. There is a gal who lives in South Carolina who has had uh, the ability to communicate with Bigfoot since she was a child. She is so good at it that she was invited to Siberia, uh, and that's a whole other story if you're interested in it, but because of her expertise. And she had a pony, 
And the pony would always get out. It would jump over the fence. It would bust the fence down. And so she finally resorted to getting a 250-foot-long boat rope. And every night she would tie it up, go to bed, and in the morning the um, pony wouldn't be there. And it would be tied to trees in the woods, someplace in the woods around her house, always different places. And as the story continues, um, the water bucket and the feed bucket would be dragged out into the woods where the pony was. And uh, then she noticed that there were like muddy handprints on the pony. And what made the story really cute was that she would find muddy little butt prints on the pony so clearly the Bigfoot were taking their little little ones for rides on the pony. That's remarkable. It sounds so human. Let's talk about the language. You mentioned uh, communication and language. I interviewed a gentleman from British Columbia. I believe his name was Brian Bland who believed that Bigfoot were communicating with him using glyphs that were created out of twigs and branches sort of bent into symbols and shapes. Do you know anything about these glyphs uh, and and what, how else are they communicating? Okay, I would regard that as like teaching um, preschoolers the, the essence or the essential beginning of language. Like we see symbols and they learn the letters um, in first grade. Um, communication can go way beyond that. They have the ability to uh, do what we would normally call telepathy, uh, but they call it mind speak in the Bigfoot circles. And so that's the preferred way that they like to communicate. Um, but they have a language all of their own. And you may be familiar with a man named Scott Nelson. He had 30 years um, experience as a linguistic cryptologist for the Navy. And so he was very familiar with figuring out codes and stuff in multiple languages. And he was able to get a recording of the Bigfoot. And in order to figure out their language, he had to slow it down. And when he could, when he would slow it down, they could actually, or he could actually uh, hear different um, languages woven into the Bigfoot language. Um, and some of it gets kind of, um, again, humorous. Um, let's see if I can remember what some of it was. There was one where uh, there was a, a male and a female Bigfoot, and they seemed to be having a discussion like a marital couple. couple. And the female says, are you talking to them? And the male says in very slow language, no, I won't. It was like um, she was telling him to keep his mouth shut and not talk to the humans. Uh, but he, you know, I, I found that kind of interesting. But they've been able to find pieces of language um, from different languages, uh, some in Japanese. In fact, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but in my book, I give the connection where somebody can um, actually listen to a tape recording of the Bigfoot, and it truly sounds like samurai warrior like a samurai warrior talking, and there's just no doubt about it. And this uh, particular man, Scott Nelson, had people that were familiar with other languages uh, who were able to identify some of this. So they pick up our languages to some extent, but it's said so fast that we can't really understand it unless the tape is slowed down. So how do you explain that? I don't know, are they mimicking the language, or are they learning the language? How... How does that come about? 
I think they're picking up and actually learning the significance of at least some of the things we say. For example, one was caught saying, and I, it, I'm going to say it the, uh, phonetically, me, what, food, plen, food, which sounds like, I, like he wants food and he wants plenty of food. Me, what, food, plen, food. And that clearly sounds like English to me. Kind of a pigeon type of English, but nevertheless English. So, yeah, I think they... Um, uh, I think they uh, get real close to like campgrounds. Uh, many of them seem to be drawn to uh, people who are singing around campgrounds. Uh, they seem to like the music. Um, I know that when we uh, set up our first site where we wanted to put food out and we did a bunch of food experiments, um, playing a, a flute, uh, one of the wooden flutes, uh, was a way to get their attention and their curiosity. So we conducted... Um, what I call a food experiment for a while, just to see what they like, what they didn't like. And uh, that proved to be very interesting also. Tell me a little bit more about that food experiment. What were your findings? Um, actually, in the book, I have pictures of about a, maybe a dozen different kinds of uh, vegetables and fruits that were put out for them. And I turn it into a quiz with the answers on another page. But I will tell you this, they absolutely love apples. Um but beyond testing them to see what they like to eat and what they don't like to eat, and when they don't like to eat something, they will try it and spit it out. So that gives you a pretty clear indication they don't like it. We also experimented with the kinds of containers we put the food in. And anything with a handle on it, like a, one of the things was a, a cooler for like a six-pack of beer, and they would tip it over, but they wouldn't put their hands in it. We put a basket out with a handle. Same thing, it would, they would tip it over, but they wouldn't put their hands in it. We did put out a basket without a handle, and they actually picked that up and took it, and it was found you know, down through one of the mountain laurel paths um, after they'd eaten all the food and they left the basket behind. But they must have some kind of bad experience where they've gotten their hand trapped in something. So uh, um, we found that an interesting piece of behavior, really. Did they leave anything behind, particularly DNA? Um, one, we, all right, this is where I, I kind of failed. Uh, the most, yeah, we got a hair sample, a very good hair sample, and we sent it off to a lab, and you have to know a little bit about Bigfoot DNA to fully appreciate this. The Bigfoot is um, half, it's, the maternal side is human, the paternal side is some unknown um, primate that nobody has any record of. So in order to get proof that somebody is a Bigfoot, you have to have the paternal DNA, which only comes from nuclear DNA. Now, we sent off a hair sample. Our hair sample did not include any of the, um, what do you call it, the very base of the, of the hair follicle. Uh, and so they couldn't get any of the nuclear DNA. So it just came back as human. So I learned from an expensive experiment that, that you better make sure you've got the uh, nuclear DNA before you send off anything. All right, Mary. Got to run. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for me. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.